Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We are the Feminine Chaos. All right. So Phoebe and I had to record today. It was very important that we get um, on the phone today. It's uh, Wednesday, January 6th. And I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, listeners, um, but most momentous event, probably the most important political event of our lifetime, certainly of my lifetime, maybe in all of human history. Um, they're going to write entire chapters in history textbooks about this. Phoebe, you're going to have to tell your own daughter where you were when you first heard about Bean Dad. <laughs> well, definitely. That's true that nothing else has happened um, today whatsoever. Um, definitely earlier this evening, no attempted coup, nothing, nothing of there that nature, bit- maybe just slightly. Maybe slightly, a little, a little, a little bit attempted coup, tiny little wee one, just, you know, nothing, nothing of much (laughs) note there, nothing to see there. No, the, how many people do we think that was like a few hundred? How many people versus how many beans are in a can? Hmm. That's a very good question that I, so bean dad, bean dad, um, not to be confused (laughs) with LL bean, not to be confused with Mr. Bean, who evidently, Although I don't know if we're going to get into it in this podcast, opposes cancel culture. There's a lot of beans in um, the news. Also, Bean is my is my nickname at home, making this whole thing very surreal. Bet that would be surreal. Um, yeah. So Bean, there's also so I was reminded of the stew because that was kind of Bean, like with Allison Roman mm. being canceled over a Bean, um, a garbanzo, garbanzo, a garbanzo bean. Um, so yeah. Um, this man, John Roderick, um, who dares to continue existing in this world after this, this after the beans, he, after he spilled the beans. Uh, no, so he's some. He's a comedian, but also a musician. Apparently, if I Wikipedia the right person, he's sort um, of an entertainer writ large. It seems like, mm-hmm. and one of his forms of entertainment or at least how he seems to entertain himself is by writing Twitter threads that are nominally about, you know, exciting moments in parenting, but are really more about him being a pedant. It's like his shtick. Um, if anybody did not see this thread, assuming it still exists somewhere online. I will oh, I'm sure it's it been screenshotted. It's just, he, it took six hours for his daughter. He, he wanted his nine-year-old daughter to figure out for herself how to, how use, to use a can, can opener. opener. Yeah. And it took her six hours. And in the story, ver- in the bit version, we will get into this, in the version he told on Twitter, it was implied that there was no other food available to his daughter in those six hours. And um, people were not happy um, with this parenting style. It turns out and we will discuss, and we may even disagree with each other over whether it matters, and if so, why it matters, that it was apparently a comedic bit and not like a play-by-play of how things actually went with his daughter. He's, he does say there were these beans, okay? The beans, the daughter, all apparently real, but it was embellished for effect. It was like the Louis C.K. bits where he talks about his children or any other... Just to give a non-problematic example of somebody who nobody <laughs> Embell- would that Embellishing about. a story for comedic effect, what kind of monster would do such a thing? Well, 
so um, the reason, so I was not very closely following this. I saw that there was something about beans and that seemed pretty funny and a can opener. And I, I have, I'm always like at war with a can opener. So I, I get that. Like it's, it's a frustrating thing, a can opener, but I didn't really think too much of it until um, the DMs popped up with the <laughs> apology letter An apology is called. Um, and it's like a real letter. It says Seattle, January 5th, 2021. Oh, so it was yesterday. Okay. So, you know, he was earlier than the coup. Um, but it's this long thing that includes the requisite, the requisite. I have to start with this. I'm a middle-aged and note I'm quoting from this letter. It's not me. Okay. I personally, Phoebe, maybe middle-aged, but whatever will go on. Um, I am a middle-aged, middle-class, straight white male. Okay. See quoting from something. Um, and I try to be cognizant of that and of the responsibility my privileges entail in everything I do. Okay. So it's an apology for telling the story that for many evoked memories of their own being fathers. Um, but also for, and this, I have not, um, had time to look into, but apparently he had offensive tweets that were aimed at being anti-bigotry, but came across as not very nice to people who dug up these tweets recently. I've not seen any of these tweets, so I have no thoughts on their content, but apparently he did bad tweets a while ago and he apologized for the harm and pain caused by the tweets of the bad nature. Um, yeah, so the apology letter was like a text, all right? It seemed like a oh more more compelling one than the Beans story, which was just kind of like, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm just picturing him like sitting there on the internet and he's like, oh my God, you know, this is, this is spiraling out of control. Like everybody won't stop talking about this. There, nothing is going to happen to make them stop talking about that. Not, not like a Twitter coup. Maybe he, maybe he started the coup. Maybe he started it. He was like, you know what? No, the I only think... thing that's going to distract from the Bean Dad story is a coup. And then I even saw somebody on my Twitter was saying what had some joke about one of the people in the coup being Bean Dad. Like, why is Bean Dad wearing that that hat or something? You know, <laughs> yeah, we should we should mention that um, if you didn't see the pictures, you know, the um, the Capitol was stormed by a group of, I think we can say deranged. Trump supporters who thought that the election speak had been for stolen. yourself, Kat. I obviously am. My bad. My bad. A sincere um, supporter. Was... Yes, we we agree about the derangedness and the, <laughs> the, yes. Yeah, amongst the supporters, um, many were unmasked. Some were also missing even more um, vital items of clothing, and that included this gentleman, um, the Viking, heavily yeah? tattooed, wearing face paint and a furry horned hat mm -hmm. and I, I isn't it too warm in dc for something like that although i guess if it balances out the no shirt i don't know because like in it, canada you need a hat like that i don't know about in dc i think you do dc is you know it's I guess winter it's, it gets cold there that's true it's january i mean it was cold enough to mess up aretha franklin's voice at obama's inauguration mm, and that's that's damn cold um right. anyway according to the bylaws of the you know u.s constitution which i've studied extensively i believe that the man in the furry horned hat is now our president um he, <laughs> I, I think that that's a fine enough reason for me to stay in toronto <laughs> as i've ever heard um yeah so there's a lot going on with that but but the bean guy is the real the, the real tragedy of our times and so that basically 
When I saw the Bean Dad, I'm just going to confess, I did not know who this guy was. I am a big comedy fan, not whatever branch of comedy this guy is from, aka he's probably not on BritBox, so I don't know who he is. But, <laughs> um, but basically, it seemed like the very sort of cringe at best version of what I have been calling for years, um, parental overshare, where people do this thing where they're trying to like make a name for themselves online by talking about, or not, not just online or, but in writing, it could be a memoir or whatever in writing about their own, not just their own personal lives, but their own children. And the problem with this, as I see it, is that not only is it like a child can't consent to this, like they can say, Oh, my child agreed. Yeah. It's like your child agreed. Like think about, you know, but also like it becomes this like the literary angle, which if anything may interest me more is like you then cannot criticize this genre of writing without criticizing or seeming to be criticizing the parenting of some stranger. And this inevitably the same thing, there's always the same fallout. People will say, Oh my God, how could you be so terrible as a parent? You know? And then this person who's both a writer and a parent responds as a parent and thinking like they love their children, you know, like they're not trying to do anything wrong, whatever. But they put this thing out in the world, this text, whatever, you know, that other people who don't know them, who don't know their lives have read and are interpreting, right? So it's like, it sets things up in this way. So when I saw the Bean Dad tweets, I wasn't outraged. I wasn't, I had zero interest in contacting John Roderick about them, but it just seemed like that's how I classified it, if that makes sense. I did not realize it was intended as a bit, but it did seem like somebody who fancied himself funny. To me, those, I mean, I know this is all subjective, right? But that was how I interpreted it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, so we, we've talked previously on this podcast about the David Sedaris, David Sedaris, David Sedaris <laughs> holiday video that provoked similar outrage, maybe not quite as much outrage, but, um, you know, it was the holidays. Everyone was probably drunk. Um, so, but, but the problem with that video was that people saw it and didn't understand that they were watching a bit. That was right. where the outrage came from. And, and there was I a headline, think... a headline introduced it on like CBS news or some such website that was like, yeah. That was like David Sedaris says that he should be allowed to fire service workers. Right. <laughs> so like, I, think, what? Well, I think that basically this thing is like that thing. Um, I think that, and it's a hazard of Twitter that you have people, you know, who crack a joke. And this actually happens in so many different shaming campaigns, right? Like, like the Justine Seiko thing. Well, that one, kind of, that one, right, right. Is it Seiko right, or we, Sacco? Was, I thought it was Seiko, but maybe it's Sacco. It I don't like know. It should be Sacco because she got because she got sacked. That's real sensitive, Phoebe. You're I a know. bean dad. I, you know, you, you you can take the bean from the dad, but can you take the dad? No, that doesn't work. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. It's always well. It's always about. So it's two. There are like a couple of commonalities. One, I think, is the the context collapse of online. But the other is, um, and this comes up even in an apology in John Roderick's letter. Um, to his whatever to the world um basically it's often that somebody's trying to be against bigotry and failing and that's the that's the thing and that's what seems to get people the most worked up which actually this kind of foreshadows when we talk about the cheerleader 
Um, yeah, we'll, we'll eventually get mm-hmm. there. But um, but yeah, but I, I want think... to re- return to like the, the question of comedy, because actually, sure. in addition to the Justine Seiko thing, I think that there is there's like a shift happening. Right. So she made that that tweet, which was supposed to be a self-deprecating joke about her own white privilege. It just didn't land. Once it had to do it with got... AIDS in Africa, correct? Yes. She said, I'm going to Africa. Hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. Um you can p- imagine, you know, a venue in which that's clearly a joke and even a venue in which that's clearly a joke and the joke plays. This was on Twitter. Um, probably the immediate circle of people who followed her, who knew her in real life. She only had like 100 followers at that point. Right. That's such um, a key detail of that story. They would have likely read it in the spirit intended and understood that she was joking. Mm-hmm. When a tweet starts getting, and I mean, this is true of every tweet, but especially joke tweets. It gets out onto the wider internet. It's being read by people who don't know who has written it. They don't understand like what this person's online persona is generally like. They don't go and look. They don't investigate. Um, they're not sure that they're looking at a joke. They assume that they're not. And um, But this is the shift. This idea that if you overhear a joke and you don't understand it as a joke or you find it offensive that you've been deeply wronged somehow. And um, this actually reminds me of something that happened in real life. And I have to be really careful how I talk about this because um, I, um, I didn't, I didn't get permission to like tell the story, like with all of the details, but so I'm, I'm going to fudge it a little bit. Um, this man uh, was on a phone call at work um, talking to a friend and told a joke. Um, it was one of the, it was like a, it was a moth joke, um, which I don't know if I don't know if this is like a familiar genre to you. Um, the joke is that um, a, a moth comes into this psychiatrist's office and is like, "I have to talk to you. I'm like, I'm suicidal. I'm homicidal." Like, I need to I need to get this out. I need to confess. Like, I want to murder my wife. I want to murder my son. And, like, goes on and on. And, like, confesses all of these terrible things to the psychiatrist. And finally, the psychiatrist stops and says, like, hey, hey, hey. Like, we'll, we'll talk about this. But, like, what? Like, how did you even, how did you even find your way in here? And the moth says, your light was on. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> I see. That's the joke. So, guy t- tells this joke at, at work on a phone call to, to his friend. Um, and a few hours later, the police came to his door, pulled a gun on him and were like, where's your son? Where's your wife? He didn't have a wife or a child. He was just telling a joke, but somebody overheard this, had overheard him doing this and had called the police and was like, this guy's going to like, and I mean, what's hilarious to me is like the context collapse you know, you hear this story and you understand that the person who called the police on this guy telling a joke to his friend who was like eavesdropping on this conversation and like took it out of context and just like called the cops, um, that person, they, they screwed up. They made a mistake. But they and did. They may have made a, an honest mistake, it sounds like. I guess they made an honest mistake in that like they overheard this conversation clearly, you know didn't bother to investigate whether this man was even married. Right. 
Um, yeah, that's that's something. I don't know. I I, oh, I feel like I have a million thoughts on that story, but also on the game <laughs> story, and I don't know if they line up. Yeah. Really, I, like... no, I don't want to derail us, but it it remind like this thing reminded me of that thing. It was like okay, so you know, there's this well, idea I see that you... it. I see it in terms of the context collapse. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the the thing that is interesting to me is this notion that the person who told the joke, whether they really intended you to hear it, um, is responsible for the upset you feel when you misinterpret it as being something else, something other than a joke. I see. Yeah. Um, So I think that the sort of salient difference between these stories is that, um, well, there are two, like one is, if the worst case scenario is that this man had done exactly what he said in that Twitter thread, nothing bad actually happened. Like it, you know, it would have been a kind of strange parenting choice, but it wouldn't have been actually like child abuse. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of like one element of this. Whereas if somebody actually, you know, had done all these things that this moth <laughs> confessed to. Well, something well he, else. Didn't, he didn't, he didn't say, he didn't say that he'd done it. He said right, that sorry, he the wanted, moth to. wanted to. <laughs> the, the moth, the moth whatever. wanted to. the married moth Um, the married moth the married moth um so yeah that's that's one thing um where like i could see if somebody overheard something at work that they were like genuinely frightened by it's it seems more plausible to me that somebody would be triggered or very scared or whatever like honestly from that than from the bean story okay so that's that's part one part two about like so i agree there's the same thing in terms of context collapse but What's different is, so here's from an apology, which we're, I'm assuming is not a bit, okay? Might be a mm-hmm. PR move, but it's not a bit. Okay, I'm quoting. My story about my daughter and the can of beans was poorly told. I didn't share how much laughing we were doing, how we had a bowl of pistachios between us all day as we worked on the problem, or that we'd both had a full breakfast together a few hours before. Her mother was in the room with us all day. Okay, the point is, the point is, there is a daughter, there was a can of beans. There was attempting for her to do this. Like it's, you know, it's a riff on something that happened, but it's not like, but I I guess what I'm saying is that I think that the, the level of sort of miss misunderstanding or whatever that was happening from somebody who saw this, um, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily like, I didn't know this guy was a comedian. I thought this is a, a dad blogger or whatever dad tweeter trying to be funny. It turns out it was a dad tweeter trying to be funny who also like, that's his thing. You know what I mean? So like, I guess I think the difference between what he seemed to be doing and what he was doing is certainly like not that huge. However, I think the question, so to me, what, when I see this, I see that people like what I saw in my timeline was people saying occasionally, like, um, I saw people defending him, defending the parenting technique. Um, but I also saw people saying like, this reminds me of my own terrible father or something like that. (laughs) And I think, you know, that is a type of father, you know, the, the one who's the persona of that bit, which he sort of, acknowledges that that is like a type of person in this apology and I don't fault somebody for not knowing the difference between I mean this guy like nobody like it's Twitter people are glancing at it people do not have like necessarily like ample time to like 
background check every single person, you know. Ah, but. Okay. No, I was just going to say, I think, I think that where, I think you're allowed on Twitter because just for lack of other options, like how could this be otherwise to kind of have a quick response to a thread that's just kind of like your thoughts on it that are like, whatever, you know. Um, However, what appears to have happened here and why this is significant is people, you know, it was like cancellation campaign mode. I did not see that angle of it happening as it played out, but I know Twitter and I don't doubt that it did. (laughs) Um, And I think that's where you do need to like, if somebody said I was kidding, you don't like drill down on you traumatized everybody. Right. Like you, you definitely have the obligation to investigate whether you were mistaken before you embark upon a campaign to ruin someone's life for having yes. done something offensive. Yes. And I think that so, that's where Twitter though gets so tricky because, you know, if many, I mean, this is like, I've been saying this for years and others have too, you, you know, like if something becomes huge and like a lot of people are saying that was a bad tweet, even if it was a bad tweet, having like, a thousand people tell you that you made a bad tweet and you're not used to that even level of response feels pretty bad. And once you get a thousand people who think you're wrong, like a hundred of those thousand, like (laughs) will not be happy until your head is on a plate. So. Yeah. um, So I just want to, I just want to say that like the, the way that this went down, um, I mean, this wasn't just criticism. This wasn't just people saying, I didn't find this funny or I found this hurtful and here's why. Um, what I saw, and this is like, I mean, it was really, it was so over the top. People were tracking down anybody that this guy had ever collaborated with, anybody he was friends with, anybody who'd ever said a kind word about this man and demanding that they denounce and disavow him publicly oh okay because he had written this thread that you know i and i want to i want to say like my interpretation of this thread when i first saw it and having thought about it since i I just feel more strongly about this that this was a joke about him being a pedant or is it pedant i think it's pedant pedant? oh i don't know but i'm not sure i yeah um pedantic is is definitely Yeah, it was a it was a it was a a joke at his own expense. Like he was not intending to position this as like some triumph of parenting. It was like I was an asshole, you know. Right. And I think I, I think that there are a million contexts um, in which comedians tell jokes like this all the time. Um, you know, Bill Burr does a a bit that's similar to this about like. Um, giving up his dog uh, for adoption and then, and being emotionally distraught over it and like, you know, jamming it all down um, all of the, all of the anger and all of the grief and then like letting it erupt later when it's inopportune. And it's funny. um, And, you know, his wife is obviously a part of this story, but like, it's not a joke at her expense. It's not about her. It's about him. It's about him being Mm -hmm. an asshole. And I think Mm -hmm. this is a very, I don't think anybody thought that this was a joke at his daughter's, expense i don't think anybody thought he was making fun of his daughter i think oh no i think that people thought he was describing an instance of of legit child abuse people are i mean even people who i you know whose opinions i otherwise find reasonable and and generally respect were saying like how could you brag about depriving your starving child of a can of beans for six hours you know 
Um, but yeah, and I mean, this is, I don't know, like the the thing about this story that that really kind of hit home for me was how much it's it's similar to the whole Nanette vibe. I guess, you know, we're just seeing like an echo down the line of of Hannah Gadsby's quest to, you know, remake comedy to be not funny. But was it funny here, though? Was it funny? Can we just just for a second, did you find were you like amused by the bean dad thread? I found it entertaining. Yeah. I didn't like laugh out loud. Because I just didn't find it funny. Like it didn't do it for me. And I like all sorts of like, as I was telling you earlier online, like I find all sorts of objectively offensive comedy funny, but this, I just like, it just, so this isn't, this isn't your type of comedy. It's not, it's not mine either, but I, you know, I'm not really a, a big comedy person. I don't find most comedy funny. Actually, I hate to laugh. That's a joke. That's good. No, that's good. you don't want to because Nanette will come and get you. <laughs> but this was the thing. It was like even being told that this was a joke, people were like, well, we don't want a joke. We want to be mad. We want to stone this man to death in the public square for because we're bored and it's fun. Um, and, you know, we're, the, that's sort of like what the Internet is for. Well, that's the problem. That's I think that's, that's what I think that's what frustrates me about every single one of these episodes, because it also becomes impossible to criticize anything if you don't want the person stoned to death, head on platter, whatever imagery we're using for this. Um, because, I mean, like, what if you wanted to say simply that the, you thought the being dead thing was bad? You can't really do that without joining this chorus that wants the being dead guy canceled. You know what I mean? So I think it's not only that it, like, impedes the freedom of people who want to tell a joke sure it does that but it also impedes the freedom of anybody to say the joke wasn't funny because i find in every single one of these things that it becomes impossible to say like with the david sedaris thing i didn't find it particularly funny okay a little funnier than this maybe but um it just becomes this thing where if you like merely to say i did not find that joke funny reads culturally like as this statement that you just want, the, that you were upset by it, triggered by it, want the person canceled, even if you simply like find something else funnier that's like perhaps even more outrageous. <laughs> so here's here's a question, um, and I'm I'm not sure that I know the answer, but so I want to hear your thoughts on it. How necessary is it when someone tells a joke that you don't find funny to register that you didn't find it funny? It depends the context. I mean, I think if it's like, I mean, is that is that a, is that valuable to the discourse? And I mean, and well, maybe, sure. I mean, like it... any other, it's like any other cultural criticism. If you don't like a movie, if you don't like, um, you know, I think it depends. Again, like the sort of, um, I mean, I think this was different because this wasn't. I don't find it funny. It seems like a lot of people did not get that it was supposed to be all that funny. Um, so that's part of it. But if it's like once it's established that something is comedy, I don't know. Like I did not find Nanette funny, although I guess I wasn't supposed to. So maybe that's maybe that's a weird example. Yeah, um, if, if you, if, I think it's like the same as if you didn't think a if you didn't think a book was good, you didn't think a movie was good. I mean, it's like if it's professional, or you know, if it's published in some capacity work. I think where social media also blurs things is like just because something was posted online doesn't mean the person who posted it has any sort of meaningful platform um, or is getting paid for what they, you know, like it doesn't, it's not quite the same. So like, if you say, 
like there's this whole long piece in Slate that's very, very mad apparently at the new Wonder Woman, which I have not seen and have no plans to see, but apparently like... I've seen it. It's not that great. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> in any case, they're very mad in Slate about it because it's problematic. Um, and also because of something to do with Gal Gadot's 2014 Facebook post about um, Israeli matters and anyway, whatever. So the point is, if you if you're very mad at Wonder Woman... Wonder Woman is going to be okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you're very mad at like somebody with a hundred followers who did a tweet, I don't know. Like maybe that's, I don't think saying like, that's not funny. And I think I mean, the problem is like the whole thing on Twitter of people. And, and this is not really one of these cases because this guy is, you know, like a professional entertainer of some sort, it seems, but you get people who like say something dumb. They have two followers, some huge account quote tweets them. And that's like some huge accounts. That's like their whole sort of MO, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of it is just to do with scale. I, I think the answer should, for for lack of a better term, cancel culture isn't like nobody gets to be criticized ever. I think it's just like keeping in mind some sort of sense of proportion and scale, both in terms of how angry to be about things that are like not necessarily worthy of great anger, um, but also just like, um certain things yeah i i certainly think there's like a wide range of things um that like just shouldn't be like you just think the the right thing to say is nothing like this this came up a lot when i wrote about privilege like because people would ask me when they would like ask me about the book they'd say like okay you know like so what should you do instead of saying your privilege is showing or check your privilege and i say like often nothing like often these are just cases where you just like where there's no productive, like not all, if all you're trying to do is flag an instance of somebody being oblivious for the heck of it, the alternative isn't like to educate them in a different way. It's like, no, just like leave it. You know, sometimes you just have to leave it. Well, that's actually, I think that I, I am sort of on the same um, train of thought as you are. And I just keep thinking about like, if somebody is somebody's made something, you know, whether it's like a Twitter thread that's meant to be a joke or whether it's a movie or whatever, it, it's it's very difficult to draw a line, especially in the the sort of contemporary culture discourse as it unravels generally, between a critical conversation about the thing. And there was actually a lot of really interesting critical conversation about the Bean Dad thread, but it's so hard to separate that from people who are saying, I didn't find this funny and it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have, it shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, that's, I mean, I don't want to be an elitist about cultural criticism. I think, you know, you, you don't need to like go to critic school in order to do it. But I do think that there are a lot of people who are not particularly sophisticated about their understanding of art or, or their understanding of like how criticism is supposed to work, who instead of having a conversation about, you know, why a, a piece of art or a joke or a movie or whatever doesn't work, they want to talk about whether it should exist mm-hmm. or they say mm-hmm. it, should have, it should have been different it should have you know you should have told a a joke that I liked you should have told this joke not that joke well there's the one mode for interpreting everything and it it always goes to the same place it always involves digging up somebody's old posts and being like see that's why they're bad it's like it's very predictable I mean if nothing else it's boring for how predictable it is 
Yeah, um, it's also depressing. I mean, I saw somebody, this uh, this writer John Hodgman posted a thread um, talking about the his relationship with John Roderick, and you know, saying like, I know him as a guy who who you know does this shtick, like you know, jokes about his own pedantry. Um, I also, you know, um, I also know him as a man who's very thoughtful, you know, who's very giving, like he's my friend, blah, blah, blah. And he linked to Roderick's apology for the Bean Dad thread. And in John Hodgman's replies, it was just a slew of rethink this, like cut him off. You shouldn't be friends with this person. This apology was written by a PR firm, like because it was a because it was a good apology. Therefore, it was too. Oh, that's good, always right? the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it's just people are like scorched earth on this guilt by association thing. You know, where even once they've extracted the apology, they're not satisfied. It's not enough. They don't want to be. They don't want to be mollified. They want to be angry, and like whatever keeps the anger going, that's where you land, and that that's damn depressing it really. is but it's also a good segue i think um is it i think it is people wanting to be mad um you want a segue yeah let's go what's, okay. what's the next topic so cat wrote a very compelling article uh for arc digital called how could she not know about um well among other things i mean the, it's ostensibly about you know the cheerleader who was canceled from her college as it were um for she basically she was was it like 18 or 19 um posted something about her support for black lives matter which prompted somebody who when she was 15 had was this that the person had recorded or had a recording of her using the n-word not at a person, but like using it with a friend in a car. Is this right? Am I telling the story yeah, at all I, right? I'm sure really you know better not, than I do. Not really. Yeah. Let okay. me. I'll. I'll, I'll okay. try. I'll try to sum it up. Okay. Um. This cheerleader. I. You know. I. I sort of don't want to say the name of any of the kids who were involved. In I this think that's fine. Yeah. You know, it's rough. Um. So there's the cheerleader and the classmate, right? The cheerleader, at the age of 15. Posts, sends a Snapchat to a friend. Um, she just gotten her learner's permit, and the Snapchat was three seconds long. It was a video. She says, "I can drive," n words. She uses the hard R. It's very casual. Um, when I when I heard it, I was like, "Whoa!" You know, that's pretty crazy. Um, so she sends sends this Snapchat. It gets saved. Um, apparently Snapchats are supposed to disappear, but you can like find a way to keep them, um, as you know, there's always, there's always a way to keep the receipts. So it made a little bit of a splash amongst her classmates at the time, apparently to the point where she realized that it was a really regrettable moment that she shouldn't have done it. And she apologized like a year or less after this to, you know, people who had seen it. Um, and did she have that- a PR firm do the apology? No, no, she's just a kid. <laughs> you know, she just, she just like, <sighs> she should have like reached, she didn't reached out to okay. her friends. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. What a rube, right? Yeah. Like reached out to her friends and said, I'm really sorry. Um, But so, okay. um, th- I guess two years after she made this video, one year after she apologized for it, the video circulated again 
was sent to a classmate of hers, a boy who is, I guess it's, we should mention that he's mixed race. Um, and she's white. And she's white. So this boy, the classmate, saved the video and decided to hold on to it until he could release it, like, quote, when the time was right. This is what it says in the New York Times story, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, a year later, cheerleader in the midst of the George Floyd protests posts a message in support of Black Lives Matter. Um, her classmate takes this opportunity, knowing you know, knowing that she's posted this, knowing that she's recently chosen where she wanted to go to college, releases the video publicly. And she got kicked off the cheerleading team at University of Tennessee, which she had been, you know, I mean, this was like her lifelong dream to be on it. So her cheerleading career is over. Um, and then she was, I think, urged to withdraw from mm -hmm. school because, um, you know, they, they were like, you won't be comfortable here because they can't actually kick you out of a public university for bad speech, but they can make it very unpleasant for you to matriculate Right, and there, her so. classmate was quoted then in the Times as saying he has no regrets. That yeah, was, sounds very self-satisfied. Yeah. Some people felt that he sounded sociopathic. I think he just sounds like a dumb kid who probably shouldn't have done this, is probably going to come to regret it, if only for the effect that it has on his life, because right. he doesn't come yeah. off well in this article. Anyway, yeah. um, this was a story that everyone was talking about, and a lot of people wrote reaction pieces to it, like, you know, talking about whether the cheerleader was more guilty than the classmate, whether the classmate was more guilty than the cheerleader, who's the bad person. Um, I was more interested in the cheerleader's explanation for why she made this video she said that at the time she was 15 she did not understand the full weight and meaning and context of that word and a lot of people found this really unbelievable um i did not because oh my god I vividly... oh my goodness, the, the story you tell at the beginning of this piece i mean i'm just gonna say that listeners need to just read it for themselves because like you need to be surprised by it in the story but some people really don't know what words mean is <laughs> maybe yeah. the, the teaser for this, like really yeah. don't know. Yeah. And without, that's without yeah. you know, giving anything away, I was taught the word by a friend who did not know what it meant. I was 12. She was 13. Um, I'm very, very lucky that I didn't take her word for it. And I went and I asked my mom what it meant. And she told me the, the truth. Um, yes, so, you are lucky because that could have been. <laughs> it could have been so bad. I just think about oh like, I mean, when you're a kid and you learn some new slang. Like you, end up, you sometimes end up using it without really knowing what it means. Like all I can think of is this time in high school when some guy said that he had the runs and I thought it meant he really needed to pee. And I was like, that's a great turn of phrase. I too have the runs. I have the runs all the time. I have them right now. Like, and I couldn't figure out. I don't want to even say how long, how long it took to realize that I was not using this, this oh. phrase correctly. It took too long. I'm really embarrassed. Oh, well, I did. T I explained to you what it meant just before we recorded. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. I just um, thought I you to, might want to know. After this, I have to go apologize to my in-laws and everybody <laughs> else I've ever... No, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> of course, it is a joke. It is a joke. Um, yeah, so I thought that was a really um, interesting and fruitful angle to take on this because I think that is like a lot of really any story that involves 
um, you know, kids, like there's something about online where like, because it's a, you know, a, a piece of whatever, a little clip from somebody 15, from somebody 25, whatever, it all looks kind of the same. Like it's hard to kind of, oh, I don't know. Like normally in these cases, I feel if it's just about like colleges finding things out and retracting admissions, I'm torn because on the one hand, like it seems cruel and upsetting, but on the other, like colleges, like what are they with their, their admissions, if not assessing who you were at these ages where it's kind of almost unethical to assess who somebody is as a human being. You know what I mean? Like they are looking at what you did that was good when you were 15. It's also harsh certainly and then i think it also like if you know and then there's this whole general question though of like well okay so I, i'm totally rambling but i was going to say another thing that i saw a lot in reactions to this piece was kind of like why be mad about that and fine with people being like arrested as adults you know tried as adults at, or something like that as a young person i'm thinking like are the same people actually inconsistent or is this just some sort of like straw argument i think that they are actually i think that you do see a fair amount of this and you know it's it's interesting that we've landed in a place culturally where if pressed people would admit that murder is worse than racism but otherwise if sort of left like unless you push it to that point it's almost as though racism is the worst thing a person could ever do. You know, racist is the worst thing a person could ever be. It's it's kind of like this trump card for, for human badness. And I think that people are anxious to be punitive for it and ignore, you know, the possibility of of growth having taken oh, no, place. I, I mean, I think that that all makes sense. But I'm saying that do you think that there are people out there who saw this story, felt bad for the cheerleader, but then turn around and say, but anybody who, you know, sold weed when they were 15 should be locked oh, away for life? Um, do you think that that's like a demographic no, I think, of any? I think, it work, I think it works the opposite way. Right, I think that a lot okay. of people who would, who would argue in favor of, you know, say criminal justice reform, um, nevertheless are are very anxious to punish racism it's almost like it's almost you know akin to the sort of sex offender um attitude where it's like you've done this thing you will never be rehabilitated like there's no redemption for you and any any redemption or any growth you claim to have made is just you playing pretend like for pr purposes well, that's, that's what's sort of mm-hmm. well i wanted to actually like sit with that part of the story a bit because like so the part of it that jumped out at me the most was really that catalyst of her posting as it was like 18 or 19 year old about her support for black lives matter that mm-hmm. the fact that that was obviously that wasn't what started all of it but the fact that that was the prompt for sharing the clip and ultimately getting her kicked out of school although again i think like it's important to say like a classmate did not have her kicked out of school. That's kind of on the school. <laughs> like that's another right. whole issue. But yeah, the, the fact, adults, yeah, the, the adults here definitely like made a bit of 
uh, mess of all this, but but yeah, just the but just the angle that did jump out at me first was just like the fact that the prompt was her trying to be the good ally. You know, you don't know what's in anybody's hearts and minds. Fine, that's that's fair. But like to assume that you can know that it's hypocrisy that somebody thinks one way at like eighteen and maybe thought even if she very sincerely thought a different way at 15 as versus just said something stupid at 15 that was racist and she didn't apparently quite get that um why would it be bad if she changed her ways given what direction things were going you know from saying something offensive to being anti-racist later it just seems like that connects this to me with like the Justine Seiko Sacco story. Yeah. Because that's again, one of these things where like, I mean, it wasn't a joke. It's not that anybody was telling a joke, but um, just this idea that like, if she hadn't said something, you know, anti-racist, her earlier racism, I'm not going to say exactly, you can't full on counterfactual this, but like, I think part of my hunch when I read this was like part of why this was shared was because it would upset her as versus just because it would get her maybe kicked out of school. You know what I mean? Like, because if she, oh yeah, because if, if you didn't know any, if her politics currently were unknown, you don't know if it would upset her. Maybe she's out there. Maybe she would have been out there storming the Capitol. Who knows? You know what I mean? But no, <laughs> that's not her politics. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that there's just something like, I mean, there's obviously something very dishonest about anybody who looks at their own 15 year old self and imagines some sort of like, either imagines utter purity or like, doesn't understand that if they didn't say that word at that age, and I'm quite confident I did not say that word at that age, that this owes something to their own cultural surroundings and all of this and isn't necessarily that their heart is more pure than that of this cheerleader. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. And this this sort of was central to what I was trying to explore when I wrote this piece, which was, you know, it was literally this question, how could she not know? Everybody is mm-hmm. saying, I would have known. Like, I knew exactly. by that age. And I think that people are probably, I mean, especially the, like, sort of media class who I think grew up largely in, like, liberal enclaves. Um, I doubt that they heard this word used as a slur very much growing up, if at all. And I mean, I didn't live in a particularly enlightened environment. I'm from really, you know, rural, small town, but we didn't really have any Black people in town. So, like, even if you really wanted to use that word, there weren't a whole lot of people around to to aim it at, which I think is how I managed to be, um, you know, so clueless about it for so long. But um, yeah, you know, people are so confident that both the understanding of the word and the ability of your average teenager um, from any given background to understand the word remains like frozen in time and in space in, in whatever context it was that they learned it and learned it was bad. And therefore that's everybody else's context. And what I think is interesting is that the word is both more ubiquitous now um, in pop culture, in the music that, that people listen to every day than it was you know, 25 years ago when I, when I learned what it was. Um, and that's in, in a context where it's basically a euphemism for person or dude. Um, 
but then it's also much, much more taboo. And I think that, you know, I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point where you cannot say this word in any context as a slur, even if you're just identifying it as Isn't a slur. Isn't it something where like professors have gotten in trouble for using it in class, like as a quote yes, or, or that, something? That guy, from, that guy from Netflix was like, here's a list of words that we're trying to keep off of our network because they are bad and they are slurs. And then he said that word among them and he was fired. He was fired for using it in that context. And you know, whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, um, I don't really want to debate that. I mean, I, I think I think it would be preferable if we could still say it out loud to identify it as something bad. But that's because what you you create, like you make a decision, okay, we're not going to say this word in any context because it's so offensive. But you already know that it's offensive. You already have this background. Um once you decide that you're so afraid of this word that you're never going to say it aloud and you're never going to talk about it, you delete this information from like the ether and and then you expect like a 15 year old to have somehow absorbed it anyway. Like, I mean, it's it, it creates this socially enforced ignorance down the line, like your fear today leaves a bunch of people very clueless tomorrow. And that's sort of where I wanted to drill down in this piece and just say like maybe we should be thinking about this i thought that came through it... really well i thought that came through oh, really well thank you um I'm glad. so i have to do the devil's advocate thing or not okay. the devil's advocate but like woke baby woke baby <laughs> a lot of the response i saw that was favorable to her classmate rather than to the cheerleader was basically like what should a young person do about racism at their school and I think that is where like it you know I mean you've also I know you've tweeted about this too like about the sort of trust question but like I think that's where it becomes like less about like her classmate having done the wrong thing although I I think there's certainly problems with what her classmate did but it becomes more like what ends up happening when, you know, like if the problem was the atmosphere in the school, it is a problem that the only, if people feel that the only way to address a problem, and this is true, not just among young people, but just in general is like identify the individual and, and make an example of them. You know what I mean? Whereas like it's, it's, which is a little bit inconsistent with the idea that this is like you know systemic racism this isn't about individual racists this is about you know problems in society because it just seems like if there's a problem at this school of people using the n-word throwing it around and being just generally racist and rude which you know like i'm sure at every high school people are you know awful in one way or another but that if that's the way they're awful at that particular high school um it just seems like not actually addressing anything for the sort of authorities to be like, okay, we're going to get rid of that girl because we've caught, you yeah. know, like that's the problem. Cause it just, it seems like I think, but I, I, I guess I am sympathetic to her classmate feeling like that's the way you deal with things these days. Cause kind of it is, and it's terrible and it shouldn't be, you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. like, that's why I feel like, okay, if the classmate, you know, feels like he, he did what he could do. Well, like who, like who, somebody should be instructing him and all young people like of, 
you know, better ways than that, but no one is. And I think the problem is that in like grown up society, like if you're unhappy with a general culture, rather than, you know, even necessary, it's not even that you like find the most egregious examples and make examples of them. It's like you just find something that maybe isn't even so egregious just so that you can like whoever would be easiest to take down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, she was made into a scapegoat for all of these systemic issues. And like, I mean, this was one thing about the New York Times piece that I found just, I guess, maybe a a little weird that they they talked about, you know, all of these systemic problems. um, And they mentioned things going way, way back, like things like that there used to be slave auctions down the street from the school. And I mean, that's horrific, obviously. Um, but it really has nothing to do with the cheerleader. You know, that, that that's not a line that you can draw as a, as a, you know, intellectually honest person. And I thought that that aspect of the coverage was reaching a little bit too hard to connect, you know, an insensitive poorly thought out Snapchat video um, to this sort of broad based systemic racism that's caused, you know, enormous material harm to black people throughout. the Right. And also that's not just in the South, you know, people are pretty nasty in high schools everywhere. Um, And to treat it as like something that would only be going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing is, you know, obviously like, the classmate was, I mean, was and is a young man. And I think that it's a very natural thing when you feel powerless um, that you look for low hanging fruit that you can knock down. It's, you know, then that's what this cheerleader was, you know, he was able to wound her. He was able to harm her. Um, He wasn't able to make that kind of a difference in the culture but he could take it out on her. And that's where I think, you know, if we were like going to say where, where is there a a moral mistake occurring in on his side, I would say, that's it. You know, you did something malicious. You did something with the intent to hurt this person who had not actually done anything to you because she represented the problem you couldn't solve. Um, But yeah, you know, I think that the, the, it's the urge of the, the adults who should know better, um, you know, who can't claim ignorance about this, uh, to make a scapegoat of a 19 year old for something that she did three years ago that she already apologized for, you know, that's, that's nuts. Yeah. I mean, I also, it it is, but also I'm thinking just in terms of like, so there are always two things with these things. There's like, what sort of viscerally, you know, feels like cathartic and like what's strategic. And just to like pause on the question of what's strategic Um, I think the problem here is that like, obviously taking somebody, uh, you know, white cheerleader in the South who's for Black Lives Matter and canceling her seems like maybe not strategic. I don't know. It just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it's taught her any, like, I don't even know what lesson exactly it would have taught her. I don't, I mean, obviously there's like, there is far right backlash, you know, in the States at this point, like literally, very literally in some (laughs) locales, it just seems like I can see this getting sort of all the wrong people worked up. And I can't really see this persuading anybody of anything. I, 
but I also like I, I I'm more sympathetic to the sort of visceral cathartic like this school was an oppressive environment and he couldn't take it aspect but mm-hmm. I'm not sympathetic to adults who look at this and are like you know <laughs> like like well that's just strategy <laughs> like no like that's not anything that's not actually doing anything to help anybody it's just you know um yeah it's just school then the school's just basically playing pr because they don't want to be the one that had the racist cheerleader you know and it's like oh i don't know it's just it's a it's bad it's bad but um do you have more on this i do not and but go um, read cat's piece and and state definitely i mean you should read the whole thing but you certainly want to read the first section in full the first first sec the first section is really where the you know i mean there's the the color and the glory there's there's a lot of glory in that first section um (laughs) um so without anything further to say on cheerleaders or bean dads do you have anything else phoebe i think that there should be more cheerleaders for beans oh no wait or fewer because it was too trendy early in the pandemic and everybody's sick of them bean leaders definitely <laughs> and you yeah. any, right. any final thoughts uh, my final thought is that yeah, if you are listening to this episode publicly you should consider subscribing to our patreon at patreon.com slash feminine chaos where you can enjoy more conversations like this one except often a little bit more ridiculous mm-hmm. This was relatively solemn as feminine chaoses go. Yes, we kept it serious. Well, I mean, we did start talking started talking about beans. That's true. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> even so. Um, and with that, this has been Feminine Chaos. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Bye. Bye.